0: Welcome to the SHIFT Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. On the SHIFT podcast, facilitated by the Student Experience Office, you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at Queen's, how these experiences are shaped by identity, their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate, and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting culture shift.
1: I think a common theme amongst many POC is there's like this burden that we always have to be the ones to advocate.
2: In their eyes what I do and how I perform will then impact how they view all Latinos and all Latinas.
1: But I think realizing that, you know, sometimes people aren't gonna be pleased, but you have to do what's best for you.
0: Listeners will also learn about resources that exist for equity-deserving students at Queens and hear tips for where to find community and support. This podcast is part of the Queens Shift Project, a collection of initiatives aimed at creating a safer and more inclusive campus culture for all students. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Shift podcast. Today we have two very special guests with us, Andrea and Serena. And so I'm going to pass it off to them to introduce themselves.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Serena. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm in my third year of the life sciences program here at Queen's.
0: Hi,
2: everyone. My name's Andrea. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a third year
0: and a psych major. Mm hmm. So, we all study at Queens. And what I found is that everybody comes to Kingston for very, very different reasons. Let's talk a little bit about why we chose Queens. All right.
2: I will say I was originally put off uh, from coming to such a predominantly white institution, especially after that first open house and tour that I did. It was very scary coming from a place like Markham, where my family lives, where it's much more diverse culturally. And going through that campus tour with my dad, both of us being visibly different, the majority of people here, it was a culture shock. And I almost decided to just completely not apply. Fortunately, I did. After a while, I came around to it because of how appealing the psych program was to me. And, yeah, I decided to come here.
0: Interesting. Serena, how does your experience compare to that? Um, My experience is actually quite different um, because I'm actually from Kingston.
1: So, um, different from Andrea, I'm kind of used to being around, um, like, being the only person of color in my classes in high school growing up. And so when I went to the Queen's open house and, you know, I obviously I did feel kind of out of place, but it wasn't really a feeling that was new to me because I'm very much used to it being from Kingston. Um, And to be honest, the reason I did choose Queen's um, when I was in 12th grade, it was right when the pandemic hit, like, March 2020, um, and I was debating heavily between McMaster and Queen's. And ultimately, the reason I picked Queen's was because, A, I was really interested in their life sciences program. Um, I knew people who came out of it, and they got, you know, they had really good opportunities and jobs. And B, like I said, it was the height of the pandemic. The world was in chaos. There was so much uncertainty. um, And I just thought staying close to home was kind of the right move for me at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you felt out of place, it was more so just you being a potential first year in a new environment more so than feeling different. That's really interesting. Andre. can you speak a little bit more? I guess now that you are at Queens, has your experience been different? Do you feel like it's Markham at all? (laughs) Interestingly enough, I,
2: without, at first, without actively seeking to, I did end up finding a lot of people that had similar backgrounds to me, not in terms of nationality, because I'm Peruvian and there's not a lot of us here at all, but in terms of experiences of coming from more Diverse communities and then coming here or having immigrant parents, while our experiences weren't exactly the same, we had enough commonalities that once we were all here together, we just ended up finding each other and it did seem uh, a lot better. The funny part though is that once I decided to come here before first year I had no idea that this was going to be the case like 12 uh, grade 12 me or first year first year me would not have known that
0: this was gonna happen but I am mm-hmm. glad it did Serena how do you feel about your experience at Queens so far
1: um I think my experience at Queens has... It's changed very much over the years. Um, I kind of rule out first year when I talk about my experience because it was online, you know, I wasn't really interacting with that many people. Um, All my classes were asynchronous. So, I don't really think first year is kind of like my outlier year, but in terms of second and third year, I think second year was when I personally was like really struggling with my identity and fitting in at Queens um because although, like I said, I'm from Kingston, I'm, you know, used to being the only person of color in my high school classrooms, um you know, in elementary school, I feel like being in a classroom of, you know, Going from being in a classroom of like, you know, 30 people to being in a classroom of 300 people and, you know, maybe spotting a handful of people of color in your classroom. It can be a bit jarring at times. And in second year, I did. I really did struggle a lot with, you know, my identity and, you know, just even just being proud of my identity and not trying to, you know, fit in or hide in the shadows. Um was really difficult for me and at the time I wasn't super aware of you know all the resources on campus and you know how to connect myself with other people so I felt like that was really difficult for me Um, but you know fast forward a year I still do feel that way at times Um, but I have found like communities and groups that I feel comfortable with um where I no longer feel like I kind of have to hide in the shadows, if you will, because um, I'm surrounded by these like-minded people um, and, you know, other like women of color, people of color. And like Andrea was saying, they may not be, you know, they may not have my exact lived experiences, um, but I think just having the lived experience as, you know, a person of color at a predominantly white institution is so, so like validating as another um, woman of color because, I can talk about things that happen with them that if I talk about with my other friends, they just kind of, they, you know, they try to be supportive, but they don't quite understand what I'm getting at or what I'm talking about. So, yeah.
2: I totally agree with a lot of what you've been saying, Serena. I I can relate. I've also felt those ups and downs. The downs mostly being experiencing microaggressions for the first, time in a while because of just not leaving my house because of the pandemic and kind of forgetting how that can constantly affect you that plus dealing with mental health issues and with the pandemic I feel like it was a long journey too to get to this point where I can confidently say that I really know people and they really know me and I can relate to them in a way that I can't really relate to the average person in my classroom. So it is a pretty complex and nuanced experience.
0: Yeah. I was thinking it's really interesting that you both come from such different environments. But all in all, you've had a pretty similar experience in the fact that, like, once you've found your people, so to say, you were able to feel more confident in your identity and feel more supported at Queens. Um, and, and it's mostly because Queens is growing its diversity for the most part. I definitely have noticed that, especially as I get into my
1: upper year classes that are like smaller in size, um, I definitely have noticed that there are, there is more diversity in my classes, which um, I love to see. And like, even in a setting like a classroom, I think it just, it helps you to feel supported when you know that, you know, people aren't going to be looking at you as like the outlier in your class. Or like I had an experience in high school where one of my teachers would constantly confuse me and the other and one of my friends who was also South Asian um, and even though we know look nothing alike, she would always call us by like each other's names. And so it's nice to not be the only person in my classes like that, because, like I said, when it kind of feels like all eyes are on you in situations like mm-hmm. that. Um, and I think for me, that just relieves some of the stress associated with that, like, you know. Is am I going to be confused with someone else or, you know, are they going to know how to like pronounce my last name? (laughs) Like, you know, just things like that. (laughs) I feel like it's just so, you know, it just brings me like more peace, I guess, just knowing that there's more diversity Mm -hmm. um, slowly growing in like classes and on campus.
2: Yeah. Also, I think being. For example, for me, being the only Latina or visible Latina in my classroom, it's also the pressure of, in their eyes, what I do and how I perform will then impact how they view all Latinos and all Latinas. It is a pressure that once I start getting that agency and independence of being an upper year and choosing more electives and classes that I want, it has the groups of people that I wouldn't otherwise see in my specific program, I feel like that pressure is lifted. I, right now I'm taking two gender studies courses and I will say it is very, very fun and very de-stressing walking into a classroom and not being like in the 10% or 5% of uh, POC where that ratio changes to much more. And it's it's relieving.
0: That's so nice. And something that you said on is the pressure of representation. And I think that's not talked about enough in the sense that like, as you said, in in their eyes, I think that's a perfect way of saying it. It's like there's a lot of pressure to perform even better than the average person in that class. And It's easier because you feel like, you know what, everyone's kind of feeling that way or like no one really cares. And I feel like that's a lens that is not so common.
2: I find that when I first got here in comparison to when I lived in Markham, where I was often racialized as white here, I much more often racialized as a person of color or even specifically Latina or at least ethnically ambiguous. In somewhere or another, uh, when I first got here, I felt that on the surface, people treated me being a Latina as, wow, it's so interesting or "It's so cool as kind of like a positive thing. But after a while, I started noticing that really that's just surface level because a lot of the times they would start assuming things because of my identity or even at parties guys would come up to me and suddenly start becoming interested in me when they find out that i'm latina it it's something that uh i learned to pay attention to unfortunately because it does happen But I do think it's interesting, too, because I did have the privilege beforehand, before university, to be able to be white passing and not have to experience that, whereas my family members who aren't as white passing have always had to deal with this. And now I can look back and reflect and continue on knowing that these things do happen.
0: That's really interesting that you say that. It's almost as if your experience and how you view yourself changed depending on your environment. Is that true? Yeah,
2: 100%. Before, especially being an immigrant, my identity as uh, Latina was very confusing to me. Uh, I didn't know if I was Latina enough or me being Latina was something that I should really tone down it also sometimes didn't come up because people would not really see me as like I said as a person of color sometimes now here it forced me to confront that part of myself but then also it gave me a chance to actually find that identity in myself and become more proud and sure of it.
0: Serena, I'm wondering, is it the reverse for you where you're used to being the only person of color, but now because you see more, does it impact how you see yourself in any way or does it only strengthen your identity?
1: That's a great question. Um, And to be honest, it's one that I'm still kind of working on reflecting on. so, like I said in high like in high school, elementary school, I think there were maybe like a handful of POC um in all my classes and I like I just found that very difficult because that was, you know, like during my formative years when I'm kind of learning, you know, how the world works, how to make decisions and opinions for myself. Um and to not have many people who can relate to me was um Difficult And like to have to, you know, always kind of explain myself and, you know, combat stereotypes and just things like that it was difficult being, you know, a teenager. I think now my identity is definitely it feels strengthened um, just being around people who who get it, you know, they faced the same microaggressions that you face. They've, you know, had to climb similar battles or similar mountains And I think that that for me just feels so validating because, like I said, you're just talking to people and you're like, wow, like they get it. They understand how I feel. Maybe not completely because obviously no one has the exact same experience. But, you know, you don't have to go in depth trying to explain yourself to people because they've been there. And so yeah, I guess my experience kind of was um the opposite. I do still struggle with it. I personally, for me, one of the stereotypes that I really struggle with is like the model minority. Um, because I feel like a lot of my friends always expect me to get straight A pluses. Like if I tell them I'm nervous for a test, they're like, Well, you're gonna do great. And I I part of that does feel like it's coming from a place where, you know people of you know Asian and South Asian heritage are kind of always expected to get the grades you know no matter what Um, and I remember in second year when I was kind of struggling with some of my classes that was really really difficult for me because I was like like for lack of better words I was like I feel like the only stupid brown person (laughs) Um, and it like I think that is something that I still do struggle with a bit but Overall, I just, I do feel much more supported when I'm with, you know, like-minded people and, you know, mm-hmm. other POC.
0: How do these psychological pressures, I guess, impact how you approach different experiences or how you approach school? Yeah, I can touch on that a bit.
1: Um, I just feel like, again, I think I struggled with it more last year, um, being, you know, my first real year at university. Um and so I'm in life sciences, as I mentioned, and it's a notorious fact that second year life size is rough. <laughs> um, you have to take, you know, orgo and biochem and all these difficult classes. Um, and to be honest, I hadn't really struggled at school before second year. And I remember getting my first biochem test grade back and it was not a great grade. And I think my first thought was, you know, I feel like I'm letting myself down I feel like I'm supposed to be smart I'm supposed to be good at this and you know but my grades are telling me I'm not um and I think I struggled with that and like that part of my identity for so long because because of this myth you know it's expected that i be smart I don't you know that I shouldn't have to try to be smart, you know, it should just come naturally. Um, And so, my first semester of second year was difficult because I was kind kind of fighting, like, this internal battle with myself on, you know, between feeling like I should be doing better and feeling like I'm letting myself down and, you know, my family down. And eventually, I've kind of come to terms with the fact that I don't have to fit these stereotypes of, you know, my ethnicity, like my background. That doesn't mean I'm not going to try at school, but that just means I'm not going to let this one mold um, determine my self-worth and how I feel about myself. I also think that that's kind of affected me in terms of uh, my extracurriculars. Like last year, I definitely overstretched myself a bit and I signed up for everything and anything I could because I thought, you know, I shouldn't need rest. I should just be able to go, 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 like go from school to work to clubs to meetings and then just crash and then, you know, do it all again the next day. And again, I think it's because of, you know, this assumption that people, you know, that I should be able to do it all. And I've been working more this year on you know knowing my boundaries and knowing myself and being able to say no to things. Which I probably wouldn't have been able to do last year. So
2: that's amazing. I'm sorry. Just what you just said about working on being able to set those boundaries. I am still trying to work on, on that. I think that a lot of the times, immigrants and children of immigrants have that pressure, whether it's been directly placed on them by their parents or just Societally, I have always felt that pressure of basically making my parents' sacrifice
0: worth it. It's really inspiring what you said, Serena. Like, like pulling yourself out of that, like, vicious circle or cycle is like is so hard to do and i know so many people that suffer with this where like they sign up for everything in the sense of a making a name for themselves or making their parents proud or or bringing like honor to their community and a lot of times people forget to take care of their sense of self i think another part though is like when you do set those boundaries you feel like you're letting yourself down or your community down, or and it, and I feel like people's comments make it worse. That like, oh, like you're not doing this or you're not doing that, or I thought you'd do great at this. And I'm like, bro, leave me alone. <laughs> Let me breathe. <laughs> so how have you, how have you, I guess like navigated that cycle? Um,
1: I'll preface this by saying you're right. Boundary setting is so hard. Um, And to be honest, I still do struggle with it from time to time, Um, but it is something I'm actively working on. So, again, last year, I definitely overstretched myself. Um, I was working two jobs. I was involved in like every club under the sun. Um, I volunteered like quite like too much for a person to handle. (laughs) Um, and I, like I said, I just had a hard time saying no to things. Um, you know, people would ask me if I could meet when, you know, if I wasn't feeling well, or, you know, if I just wasn't feeling like it and I would just say, okay, Serena, you have to suck it up. You have to do it. You, you know, you have to like, please these other people. And at the same time, as I was, you know, stretching myself so thin, I was burning out (laughs) so 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 fast and I think this year I have funnily enough I've gotten really into like journaling um because I feel like I have a lot of thoughts that I like to reflect on and one of the things that I did do you know going into third year was kind of reflect on reflect on my second year and you know what went well and what did what didn't and one thing that I you know through a lot of reflection. I realized, okay, you were involved in too much. You didn't enjoy everything you were doing. You know, you sacrificed yourself so you could please others, like that's gotta stop. And so, you know, one thing for me I do is I have a boundary with, you know, everyone I'm, you know, on a team or, you know, work with that I don't reply to texts or emails after 9 p.m. That is like my personal time. And I think a big part of my boundary setting is this year I've surrounded myself with people and with clubs. And you know, just everyone I'm surrounded with are super accommodating and super um understanding. Um and I've surrounded myself with this type these type of people for a reason because I feel comfortable comfortable enough that I can set these boundaries um, and they will understand and respect my boundaries.
0: So Andrea or Serena, in your journey of, I guess, like taking care of yourself and putting yourself first before these pressures, have there been any like resources or events or communities that you found have helped, have spoken to you and helped you through this journey? Yeah, I
2: mean, throughout my university career, and I will say again, I am in third year, (laughs) throughout my university career, I've probably burnt out around four or five times. And I, as a psych major, constantly learned, you know, I should probably take care of myself and my mental health a lot more. And throughout all of these times, I've reached out to student wellness. That's always helped a lot to get physical and psychological help and support But other than that, I think the activities and extracurriculars and all of that, even that I was choosing to go into, they were for other people in my my head when I was choosing them. It was to choose what sounded good or what would make my parents more proud, even if they weren't directly asking me to do that. And... When I started putting myself first and going into diversity or inclusivity groups, like even the psychology EDI committee, choosing that also helped. It it helped me put myself and my identity first before this kind of obsession that I had to keep up with the pressure
1: for me i like i joined a club at queens called um the queens women of color collective and it's just a group of women of color who kind of work together to like bring more awareness to you know issues and struggles that we face and Like, even if it's just going to a club meeting for that, like not even talking about the work we do, but even if it's just going to a club meeting and, you know, before the meeting starts, just getting to chat with other people in the club, it's like, oh my God, like I feel so seen and so supported by this group of people. And I think that that's just like a wonderful thing to like, to be involved with and to have. Um, Like Andrea mentioned, I think I've also become very comfortable in both like sharing about my mental health journey and just knowing when it's time to like get help. I guess, as you can probably tell, I'm very big on mental health um, awareness and advocacy. Um, And I'm on jack.org this year. And I am actually like the intersectionality coordinator for my umbrella. Um, And I think being able to like plan our members meetings and get to add in like these things and have my other members coordinators also take the initiative. To like try and incorporate intersectionality into our members' meetings is such a validating feeling for me because it feels like it's not just on me, like that is my role. But I think a common theme amongst many POC is there's like this burden that we always have to be the ones to advocate, we have to be the ones to break down the stigma, we have to be the ones to bring awareness to this. But I think being around communities where Everyone is trying their best to be an advocate and to, you know, erase stigma and to incorporate different intersections into like content and just conversations is just so important. And I think it also, um, helps take away some of, you know, the burnout that can be associated with, you know, this type of work because obviously it's very easy to burn out when you're having these you know difficult conversations and it's kind of part of your identity it's not something you can leave behind per se so
2: <laughs> i was actually just going to say that it's a small world because last year i was the intersectionality coordinator for the events branch and for me the most i would say impactful but also healing part of my work there was when I had a chance to do some of my own storytelling and sharing my experiences and then also seeing how that helped people. I would get feedback and that was honestly my favorite part of it. It was such a great experience to be able to Share your experience and then hear back from people that it helped them feel less alone.
0: Wow. No, it's really, it's a great how you said it's a small world, but also I think it shows like both of your commitments to like actually putting yourself first, right? The reason why I point this out is because I feel like a lot of times people feel that if they take a break or if they take a step back and focus on themselves at the same time as reaching their goals, they won't be successful or they won't feel successful or they won't achieve the goals that they want to achieve. So do you feel successful? Do you still feel like fulfilled enough to like do what you want to do and achieve the goals that you set up to complete?
2: I think that I have found a way to kind of, compromise or blend both goals of wanting to reach to a certain career point or a certain academic path, but then also wanting to put my identity and my interests first by combining them. Like, for example, the research that I do at uh, the Ready Lab, which is the psychological lab at Queen's that I'm a research assistant at, is basically on EDI barriers that undergraduate students face in the psychology department. Doing that research is so rewarding to me, being able to go through the statistics and data and find results that are validating to my experiences. That's just one example of a way that I've been able to kind of combine those two goals. Like they don't have to be mutually exclusive or conflicting
0: that's a perfect way of saying it. The only person that's always going to be there is yourself. And if you don't show up for yourself, who's going to show up for you?
1: Yeah, I think I absolutely agree with that. And I think that you know, the realization that I have to do everything for myself and not for anyone else. um, It was kind of hard to come to terms with, to be honest, because I am such a people pleaser. But I think realizing that, you know, sometimes people aren't going to be pleased, but you have to do what's best for you. And I think just knowing that, you know, taking an alternative route, it doesn't mean that, you know, I don't deserve to be where I am. It doesn't mean I don't deserve to have success in you know my career goals. I know in first year I felt like I was not the like tr- proper science student um because like my interests weren't always just like going to med school which is what almost everyone in my program wants to do and I think just knowing that it's okay for your goals to change it's okay to like navigate that like that is what university is for it's for you to find out who you are and find out what you want to do with your life there are some days where I feel such immense imposter syndrome being in whether it's in the lab I work in or you know just in classes or you know taking on like larger roles with clubs I just have to tell myself like I am proud of you know where I've come And that relatively speaking, I'm doing like, I'm doing the best I can. Like the imposter
0: syndrome has nothing on me. You know, it's Mm -hmm. just the voice in my head. Something that you touched on is like, you know, only doing things for yourself. And I feel like as both of you said, you're children of immigrants. And I feel like whether the pressures are explicitly put on or not, you often feel like you're not necessarily just living your own life. Did you find when you made that switch, did you find that there were any repercussions? I
2: will say that even now, like I still will hear that voice in my head. What when I have, for example, a bad mental health day to not ask for time off, that they'll start thinking of me as lazy or not dependable. But throughout the years, I've. lucky enough to have parents that will actively tell me this pressure that you feel this pressure that you're experiencing we despite that we just want you to have your best life like they will tell me like they made those sacrifices but they made it so that i would enjoy my life here not struggle under the pressure to Prove people wrong or be the best at everything. And I do acknowledge that that's a huge privilege because many of my friends who also have immigrant parents don't get that same message from them. I would tell my friends any time of the day, any day, that they are enough and what they're doing is enough and they don't have to work hundred percent of the time and they don't have to be better than everyone else so why can't I tell myself that that's
0: that's a snap that's a snap worthy statement right there <laughs>
1: <laughs> for me it was always really difficult because I have a brother who is six years older than me and by most people's definitions he's like the perfect child um <laughs> Like, when I was in elementary school, people would see my name and they'd be, oh, you're his little brother, his little sister. Like, you must be so smart. Um, And, you know, that carried on throughout elementary school into high school. My brother was incredibly smart. And, you know, he got to fulfill, you know, every goal that my parents wanted for him. So I think for me, that was Although I'm incredibly proud of him, that was kind of difficult for me to, you know, base my self-worth on because I had this successful older brother who, you know, kind of he tried and he did. Um, and I had a lot more struggles than he did. And so I think for me that also played into it because, you know, when I was struggling, my parents were confused because that, you know, they never went through this with my brother. And I think. How I came to terms with it is I really just I remember talking with them one day in second year about, you know, telling them, you know, my mental health wasn't great. And I just I needed some compassion from them. And I remember they kind of looked at me and they said, you know, we only want what's best for you. We want you to be happy in life. We want you to have a good life like we don't care what you do as long as you, you know, have a career that's fulfilling for you, as long as, you know, you find something that makes you genuinely happy. And I think having that conversation for me was just so eye-opening because I, you know, I always assumed they wanted me to go, you know, down, you know, the same path my brother did, you know, go to med school, become a doctor, and, mm-hmm. you know, here I was having this conversation with them, and they were like, you don't have to to do that. And I think just after that conversation with them, I have been able to be more open about, you know, when I'm struggling, when I feel like I am trying too hard to fit, you know, their expectations of me, and I need to take a step back and do things for me. Because now that I think I've had that dialogue with them, I I guess I feel I don't know if guilt is the right word, but I just don't feel as much of it um, because I know at the end of the day, they're my parents. They do want what's best for me.
0: Yeah, exactly. So as you as you guys have like navigated life and the different like, I guess, identity changes, what was your biggest support at Queens? What did you use and how did it help? I guess.
2: I will say. Because my biggest struggles throughout my time at the university have been mental health related, the supports that I have sought out and that have helped me are even just getting QSAS for accommodations or uh, just student wellness support. So those services, even uh, the peer support center and just like having someone to talk to that I know won't react like, oh my God, that must have been so hard for you. (laughs) Um, Just all of those together, it has helped for me to be able to push through and get to better, more stable places. But at the same time, it's also been community groups or student groups where they actually talk about the stigma or the difficulties it is having these issues and then having immigrant parents that don't quite understand them having those experiences also were a big help
1: i also think like andrea mentioned the peer support center has been really good um and specifically i um their branch of bipoc talk um I visited them a couple times last year, and now I'm a volunteer there. And I think just from all my experiences with that, it's just nice to have you know this community that like realizes what you're going through and uses you
0: know a culturally sensitive lens through doing it. And in terms of culturally sensitive care, something cool that not a lot of students know at Queens is that like whether or not you have an insurance plan. You, you can access a resource called Empower Me, which is accessible to all Queen students. And it provides support in seven different languages. And they have professionals and like trained in culturally sensitive care. Um, it's also like a crisis hotline, which I think is super cool. Um, I know a lot of people that have used it and then have found that it's really helped in the moment and like helped validate rather than invalidate people's like experiences. Reaching out is such a hard thing to do Disclosing is even harder and like, you don't want to make this experience any harder than it has to be. Something we talked about throughout is, is the fact that like, because of our identities and because of the way people perceive our identities, it's kind of changed the framework of a regular university experience um, and, and added, I guess, a couple extra chapters. What ultimately is going to create a shift where people no longer have to do that? I think it's great that people are starting to have these
1: conversations but I think that they need to be you know taken away and carried into daily conversations um so for instance you know I know people you know may say in their clubs or you know in whatever advocacy they're involved with they may you know promote EDII principles and you know then they go home and A friend makes a racist comment and they don't say anything, things like that. I think we need to apply everything we're learning from these conversations we're having and really take the effort and the work to implement that into our daily lives. You know, when we hear our friends or classmates say something that is not good, (laughs) correct them on it. Um, Don't let, you know, passive microaggressions discriminations like get a like don't let people get away with that because yeah. you know that's how this toxic environment for um you know poc and you know marginalized communities forms because we let this kind of brew and simmer until it bubbles over and so i think my greatest like piece of advice i guess would be to just you know when you hear people having these conversations take something away from it and take it into your life like become an advocate not only in the classroom but in or in the club but in your everyday life too
2: i think also at the same time on the side of the university i see these statements and these core values that the university tries to uphold but at the same time it's hard to see those actually taking place when, for example, our curriculums don't also uphold those same values and, for example, emphasize certain experiences when they are relevant.
0: I think a lot of a lot of the educational experience, I guess, is really dictated on who your professor is and what they choose to teach. Um, and I think there needs to be a more collective like understanding of what are we going to teach what does this new generation need to learn to be successful but also just to be better humans than than before. So for people that are approaching Queens or thinking of Queens for as a school and coming from similar like backgrounds as you or similar experiences, what is one piece of advice or what, something that you wish, they should know something that i've been
2: thinking about especially because i have a younger cousin who is about to go into a predominantly white institution is that things aren't always easy and they won't always be easy as someone that i really care about i want to be able to tell her that it'll all be okay and like super easy transition but there are difficulties. But it is possible to go through and it can be eased by, for example, finding your people, proactively going out and finding the resources, services, or spaces that will help you feel more at home. So I guess I would tell people coming here that there are spaces and there are people who just have to maybe take the first step. And that can be scary, but it is definitely worth it.
1: Um, I just think jumping on, jumping onto that um, in terms of like, I, something I wish I could tell, you know, my past self going into first year at Queens is that not to, like, it's scary, but not to be afraid to just, be yourself which sounds so incredibly cliche but it's so true because i felt i spent so long you know trying to hide parts of my identity um because you know i wasn't sure how people would react or handle that and i just regret that so much because i wasn't being true to myself i wasn't being true to who i am Um, You know, how my identity shapes me, anything like that. I was just trying to please other people who probably didn't care anyways, to be be honest. Um, So I think that's one piece of advice that I would tell anyone going into first year is to not hide these parts of yourself that are what make you unique. It's what makes your story interesting. It's what makes you different from everyone. And I think that's honestly just such a beautiful thing.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shift Podcast. For a list of all the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the Shift Podcast website at queensu.ca slash campuswellnessproject slash shift dash podcast. If you would like to get involved in the Shift Podcast or have questions or comments in general, feel free to email us at queensshiftproject at queensu.ca.